Well, today we continue to savor the word of God. Job in Job 12.11 tells his friends, Does not the ear test words as the palate tests food? We who know the Lord, who are grateful for the salvation that he has given us, we have tasted the words of God, and we have seen and we have found that the Lord is good. Amen about that? Well, last week I shared with you a scholarly reason why the Lord through Moses gave Israel ten words. You know, we would call them Ten Commandments, but why did he give them ten words? Why not two? Why not five? Why not fifty? Well, the scholarly answer is he's got ten fingers. And the reason for this is so that God's people may learn and recite and and look at the way that the Lord would have them to live as they go through the day, as they're doing things with their hands. And so I want us to review our 10 words, review God's 10 words to us through our fingers as well. See if I can get this right. And so if you want to participate, go ahead and do that. Get your hands out. And so for me, because my left hand is dominant, I'm going to start with my left hand. And so for me, the thumb is be loyal to Yahweh alone. My middle finger is reject all other gods. And my middle finger is to wear the name of God well. And my ring finger is keep the Sabbath. And then my pinky is to honor dad and mom. On the other hand, literally, don't kill, as in don't murder. Next is don't commit adultery. The next is don't steal. And the next one is don't bear false witness, especially in a court of law against your neighbor. And finally, don't covet what doesn't belong to you. Ten words, ten fingers. This is the Lord's way that he's given his people to live. Isn't it amazing what God has done? So today, it is ring and pinky finger on my left hand. And we're going to talk about two more words in the ten words that God has given us. It's to keep the Sabbath and to honor dad and mom. These are the two words we're going to talk about today. We want to see three excellent strands of the 10 words today in the most excellent way that the Lord has given his people to live. And these three strands are rest and remember and honor. Rest, remember, and honor. I love those words, don't you? Isn't that great? Allow me to give us another reminder as well. And we saw this slide before, but it definitely bears repeating. It's a three-question call and response that I want us to refer to a lot as we go through Deuteronomy because these words, these laws, these rules that God has given, he didn't give them to the entire world. He gave them to his people. And so that's the first question. Who did God give these words to? And what's the answer? His people, his people. And the second question is, who did God not give these words to? Not God's people, exactly. And third, why did God give these 10 words to his people, to show that we love him. What did God say? And what did Jesus say in the New Testament to his disciples as well? If you love me, you're going to do what? Keep my commandments. So our passage for today is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. So if you don't have it out yet, go ahead and and pull it out. Paper or pixel, doesn't matter. So we're going to go through Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 16. There's only five verses, but these are powerful words of the Lord. And these five verses are two of the ten words that Yahweh gave 
to his people. And so we're going to look at the first word, the ring finger on my left hand. And so follow with me as we read. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, in this straightforward word from the Lord through Moses, let me touch on two things that may not be readily apparent at first glance. But this word indeed carries a lot of weight for us in the 21st century. Remember, Scripture was not written to us. It was written for us, that we might understand God's ways in our culture as well. And the first thing I see in this word is, believe it or not, something that inflicts severe damage on evolutionary theory that is often taught as fact. Now, as we know, evolutionary theory involves three things, right? Time plus chance plus matter. Those are the things, key ingredients in evolutionary theory. Again, atheistic evolutionary theory. And by faith, evolutionists view matter as eternal. That matter has always been here. How matter got here in the first place, evolutionists do not have an answer for. But in this passage, we could go a long way toward dismantling this argument from Scripture. Notice what the Lord says about this day, the Sabbath day. He says, keep it holy, set it apart as special. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, the obvious understanding is the Sabbath goes from when? Sundown to sundown, 24-hour period, right? That is the Sabbath day. Now, the grammar in the original language is simply this. Anytime that the word day is used, coupled with a number, it always means 24-hour period. End of story. That's what it always means. See, there are many who say that when Moses and others wrote the word day, it was an indeterminate amount of time. They didn't necessarily mean it was a 24-hour period. But now, if that were the case, when it comes to the seventh day, or the sixth day, the Sabbath, how long would the Sabbath day be? Indeterminate, right? It could be a long time. It could be a little time. But what does God say? It's a 24-hour period, sundown to sundown. It always means a 24-hour period. Again, whenever the word day is used, coupled with the number, it always means that. So ergo, the world was created in six 24-hour periods as the creation account states in Genesis 1 and 2. For at the end of the first day, the second day, and so on, what did God say? It is good. And at the end of the sixth day, what did God say? It is very good. Second, evolutionary theory assumes that death has always been with us. And for them, always means millions of years. 
Survival of the fittest is the idea here, and you're familiar with that terminology. But death is a relatively recent thing when you think about it. It's recent according to Scripture. See, death has been with us, human race, almost as long as we've been around. True? That's right. However, it did not exist for millions and millions of years. Death is a latecomer, so to speak. Indeed, what do Romans 5.12 say? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Simply put, there was no death prior to Adam and Eve's rebellion. And therefore, the process of the survival of the fittest did not have the time that it took that evolutionists would tell us. So according to Scripture, evolutionary theory is in large measure, disproven. And the bottom line is that we can go a long way toward disproving evolutionary theory just by a straightforward reading of Scripture and a natural understanding of how long the Sabbath day is. Again, it's a 24-hour period, and that's all. Indeed, Hebrews 11.3 tells us that it's by faith that we understand these things, especially about the creation of the world. But before I get to my second point about keeping the Sabbath, we've got to remember the worldview of the Scripture writers. And we need to start there. Now, Greg, I mentioned that a little bit. We must not ignore the worldview of the Scripture writers lest we misunderstand Scripture and lest we then misunderstand what Scripture says and misapply it to our lives and therefore to our own destruction oftentimes. Now, it's obvious that the 21st century American Christian mindset worldview is vastly different than the worldview of the Scripture writers. Would you agree with that? There's a little bit of difference. No, let me say a lot of bit of difference, isn't it? We, 21st century American Christians, are not allowed to superimpose our understanding of our worldview onto the Scripture. Otherwise, we will misunderstand what God's truth is and what it's saying. And so what I'm about to say in my second point will be considered by some to be non-compassionate. It will be considered by some to even be sub-Christian, but I need to say it. We cannot simply take the words of Scripture and read into them a meaning that was never there in the first place. Indeed, many of the problems that we have in the church and in the world happen and exist. Why? because we do that so often. And so here's the point I want us to see regarding these verses. I could point out many other things concerning the worldview of the Scripture writers, but I just want to point out one thing. Moses mentions a certain class of people who will enjoy the Sabbath. And that classification in person is the sojourner within your gates. Now, the idea of sojourner back in the day of Moses is a person who is not an Israelite, but is a permanent foreign resident alien. Now, they were going to settle in the towns that they were going to, uh, going to inherit when they actually went in and took the land, but there were going to be a lot of non-Israelites who were going to settle with them as well. These were the sojourners. And, you know, we sort of understand what this idea of, you know, sojourner is and resident alien, foreign aliens, permanent it's a 21st century mindset. We know this. 
but it's much more difficult to understand what this really was all about when we think about the scripture writers in Moses' day. See, we think of you know, people coming and living in our towns, etc. It's like a, it's a big melting pot, isn't it? And, and we all understand about that kind of thing. But in Israel, that wasn't the case at all. Let me point out just a couple of ways that Israel saw a sojourner. First, it was understood that the sojourner would assimilate into the culture. They were not to stand aloof. They were not to have their own little enclave. They were to assimilate into the culture. This person would learn and live out the customs and even the religious rituals everybody in Israel was doing. And not working on the Sabbath was a perk because they were going to do the same thing. They were not going to work on the Sabbath as well. And second, the sojourner was not or ever would be considered a citizen of Israel. And what that meant was they were not afforded the full privileges of being an Israelite. They were not considered brothers. They were considered strangers in the land. And what that meant, among other things, was they could not own property in the land. And they were very dependent on the Israelites who they were living among. As such, a sojourner could easily be taken advantage of. That's why over and over again, God says, don't mistreat, don't oppress the sojourner that lives among you. But with that said, let me briefly address the issue of non-Americans living within our gates. The official term used to be called what? Illegal aliens, but no longer. And I believe the present administration now terms these people this way, undocumented non-citizens. It was also expected that non-Americans would become assimilated into our culture, but again, no longer. Instead, the dominant Judeo-Christian-based culture that has been established since our founding has been supplanted with what? Just about everything else. I could go on and on about how the American way of life is disintegrating right before our eyes. But I don't have to tell you this. You see it. You know it. But sadly, in the name of compassion and a misunderstanding of Scripture, many, even in the church, are promoting the demise of our culture. The idea seems to be everybody's our brother, and we're all just one big happy family. Now, there's a good case to be made, however, that the sojourners in our gates are not our brothers and sisters. Scripture makes it clear here in Deuteronomy that the non-Israelites are not members of the family of Israel. And by way of application, obviously, illegal aliens are not citizens of our country. We know this. But the attitude is getting increasingly less so. For example, amnesty is huge in our, in our rhetoric nowadays, right, in our discussions. Quick path to citizenship is now the commitment being made to illegal aliens. And that commitment is being made whether the illegal aliens want to assimilate into our culture or not, whether they have good intentions or not, whether they want to have, you know, to be part of the inside culture or not. They want to superimpose the outsider culture into our culture. And, you know, the New Testament also has a thing about insiders and outsiders. Did you know that? Paul tells those in the church of Ephesus, which was made up of who? 
Messianic Jews and saved Gentiles, not to behave as non-Christians. And he specifically called them Gentiles in Ephesians 4.17. And also in addressing qualifications for church leadership, Paul said that such a person who wanted to be a leader in the church, a pastor or somebody else like that, needed to have a good reputation with who? With outsiders, as in non-Christians in 1 Timothy 3.7. So again, there's this view of insider and outsider for the church as well as for our culture. And my point is simply this. As sub-Christian and as unloving as it sounds, not everybody is our brother or sister. We are not one big, happy family. Now, this is true whether we're talking about those outside the church or illegal aliens. But with that said, with that said, don't, don't mishear me. Don't walk away thinking, well, pastor is just ragging on everybody. No. With that said, we are to love everyone the way God defines love. We're to treat all people, regardless of whether they're illegal aliens or non-Christians, with equal worth, equal dignity as imagers of God, regardless of their status. But, but it is family first. As Christians, we are to live together as family. We are to take care of one another to show those who are not our brothers, not our sisters, that they too can become part of the family of God. And as we live together, as we show it, then hopefully they'll have incentive and say, you know what, I'm missing something in my life and I want me some of that. It depends on us how well we live together in love and unity. See, there really is a difference, isn't there, between pagans and God's people. And on the national level, it is citizens first. Immigration policy is indeed set by the federal government. We know this. But immigration policy is a completely secular thing. There are those in the church who will say it's the Christian thing to do. In fact, if we don't do this, we're sinning to to not let everybody into our country because that is showing compassion to our neighbors. However, let's balance this out with Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. And it's summed up this way. We are to obey the laws of the land, including the laws concerning immigration. Legally, you know this, I'm sure you've seen it. You've run across this stat before, that we, have, we allow one million people into our country every year. And that's one of the most generous rates of immigration of all the nations in the world. We as a country want to change our policy to make it to where everybody can come in with no borders, basically. Then there is a way to do that, isn't there? We need to legislate it and take it before the president, and the president will sign it into law. And though it's not PC to say it, those here who are illegal are not sojourners, according to Scripture. But I could go on and on, but we're going to stop there at this point, okay? But as your pastor and a leader in his church, I needed to say these things because we need to understand things from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. And the bottom line, again, is that we need to see the issues of our day through the lens of Scripture rightly understood. And only then can we interact with these issues from a biblical perspective. And my contention is that we seldom do this. Why? Because we have our view 
We have our understanding and we superimpose it upon God's word to our detriment and oftentimes to our own destruction. But with that said, let me turn the corner and let's get to the heart of word number four, keep the Sabbath. Simply put, observe the Sabbath. Literally, watch over it. Guard it. Guard the specialness of Sabbath. Well, how so? First, let's remember that Sabbath means to rest or to cease, as in ceasing from one's labor. Now, there's more than meets the eye here when it comes to this. Let's remember Israel lived in an agricultural society and times were hard. Work was very difficult. So when Moses says no work, he does not mean that you can't feed the livestock. Okay, we, they need to do these kinds of things to take care of their animals and things. But it simply means this. Don't involve yourself in a gainful employment type of scenario. Stop doing that for the day. In short, work only as much as is necessary to keep the household going. Except for that, the entire nation was to take a break. Now think about it in our culture. No restaurants. No gas stations. Nothing open. That would be kind of like that. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? See, we, it's inconvenience for us, but it really is a glorious thing. Because everybody, to include family members and servants and sojourners and even beasts of burden, were to enjoy rest for a 24-hour period. And that is the who of the glorious fourth word. Everybody and everything that breathes, so to speak, was to take a break. 24-hour period without work. Ah. Isn't that great? But why observe Sabbath? Why cease from laboring? Well, in a word, that all may rest. And I mentioned a minute ago that this was an agricultural society, and the work was difficult. You know, we take it for granted. You know, we've got family members, our, our daughter and son-in-law are farmers, and so we know about this. There's big rigs and all this kind of stuff. But the work was difficult. But it wasn't nearly as difficult as it was when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. See, every member of the nation of Egypt were considered by the Egyptians as tools who could talk. They were considered little more than animals. They were useful. And like animals, they were driven to do whatever the master wanted. And this went on for many, many, many years. And the work became unbearable. You know the story. But what happened? Deliverance came. And now, instead of the nation working 18 plus hours a day, seven days a week for their entire lives, God commanded them to take an entire day off per week. Amazing, isn't it? Now, if you were an Israelite living back in Moses' day, hearing the command given the first time, can you imagine how liberating that would have been to you? Scary at first, to be certain. Because when did they hear this commandment given? When did they hear this word given? When it was thundered out from the mountain, along with nine other words that the Lord told them. And this was done 40 years prior on Mount Sinai. So allow me to give us some insight here as well. The first time Israel heard about keeping the Sabbath, the Lord commanded them to take a break from work in order to follow his example. 
That was the first time it was given. But what was God's example? Well, Exodus 20.11 says this, For in six days, keep the Sabbath. Why? Because in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested, ceased on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, Yahweh told his people to cease from their labor as he ceased from his acts of work, of creation. Israel was to stop and to remember it was the Lord who created them and everything else. They were helpless. He had all the power. Now, fast forward 40 years. Moses taught the people about Sabbath again. Only this time he emphasized these two things, rest and remember, rest and remember. Rest from their labors and remember their deliverance from slavery. They were now free people. They were to remember and not forget where they came from. They were slaves in Egypt, working like animals. And now they were like royalty, resting from their labor an entire day per week. And the results of observing Sabbath were to be dramatic. Because they were slaves and now free, they were to treat everybody around them like the image bearers they were, especially those less powerful than they. We're talking specifically here now about the the heads of the home, heads of the household. Yahweh, in essence, what did he do? Because of Sabbath, he gave the people back their dignity as his imagers. They no longer were treated as animals. And so now that they had their dignity restored to them, what was to be the result? They were to treat others with the human dignity as well, especially their servants and especially the sojourner within the gates. Now, in the first mention of the fourth word, God says, in essence, this, remember who made you. In the second mention, God says, remember who redeemed you. Not only did God create them, he redeemed them. Because he redeemed them, they were to treat everybody with the dignity the creator endowed everybody with when he created them. And what a glorious word, isn't it? This was and is a word of tremendous freedom. For what other nation had a God who told them to take an entire day off per week to cease from their labors? By the way, Sabbath observance was a unique thing in Israel. No other nation, no other gods, no other religion afforded this to the people of the nations around about Israel. This was indeed unique. No other nation practiced such thing as a Sabbath observance. And as it was with Israel, so it is with us. Though there are some Christians who actually do worship on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, because it never has changed. Sunday is not the Sabbath. You did know this, right? This is the first day of the week, not the seventh. Most of us do worship on Sunday. Now, this is typically in Scripture called the Lord's Day. But why do Christians worship on Sunday? the Lord's Day. Didn't the fourth word tell us that we need to worship on the Sabbath? Are we breaking the fourth commandment by doing that? Well, the answer is one of rest and remembrance as well. Scripture tells us that those who know Christ 
have already entered into a perpetual Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. In other words, salvation means we rest or we receive our benefit of the work that Christ did on our behalf. He accomplished the work of salvation and humbly we rejoice in all that he did for us. We enter into that rest by believing Christ. And secondly, God's people come together to worship him on the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? Because Sunday is resurrection day. Jesus rose again when? First day of the week. And we celebrate his resurrection. So in a sense, every time we come together, it's Easter. We come together for corporate worship. That's what we do. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so rest and remember, rest and remember. Like God's people in Moses' day, so it is with God's people today. Only with us, it's better. See, Yahweh told them exactly what day to rest and remember. In our day, we get to choose. See, here's what Paul said, who was the master rabbi who knew all things Old Covenant in Romans 14.5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one needs to be convinced in their own mind. The issue for us today is not the day as in the letter of the word, but in the communication of what it's all about. See, the fourth commandment, the fourth word says to rest and to remember. Let's rest and remember when we come together, offering grateful worship to the Lord for what he has done and truly to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? So rest from your labors. Remember your deliverance. And now we come to the fifth word of the glorious 10 words found in Deuteronomy 5.16. My pinky on my left hand. Here it says, honor, the, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. This word is even more straightforward than the fourth word. I really appreciate what author Jack Deere said about this verse. To honor one's parents means to value or prize them highly. Okay, young folks, value your parents, prize them highly. Children living at home express this by obeying their parents who are still at home. This commandment was critical for the existence of the nation, that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land. Parents, especially fathers, rather than the religious leaders, were to pass on the covenant values to their kids. By the way, I think about what happens in American churches every Sunday morning. What do parents attempt to do? Leave it to the religious leaders to pass on the covenant values to their kids. And we think, hey, we come to church, we take them to Sunday school, everything's fine, and now our box is checked for the week. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. So I, I see three things here in this all-important fifth word. Notice, first of all, the relationship here between parents and kids. It was one of great respect. As such, parents, but most importantly, fathers, had a wide open door to influence their sons and their daughters. In the act of honoring their parents, the kids were to pay attention to the wisdom and the lifestyle 
of dad and mom. The words and the lifestyle. Now, we see this in a number of places as we go through Deuteronomy. But let me give you just one place where this is spelled out in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you, fathers primarily, today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them while you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Fathers especially were to love the Lord with all that they had and all that they were. The words Moses taught them were to be a most precious and important thing up on their lives, the most important thing in their lives. For literally, that's what on your heart means. And out of the overflow of the Lord's word on their heart, they were to diligently, which means over and over again, teach God's ways to their sons and daughters. And so the bottom line here is the relationship between the parents and the kids. It was to be such that a maximum transfer of God's ways were to go from parents to kids, and both by word and by lifestyle. For far more is caught than taught. Would we agree with this? See, if dad and mom are godly, kids will pick up on this. If dad and mom couldn't care less about the Lord and his ways, guess what? Kids will tend not to pick up on that. Indeed, one's kids really are the disciples of mom and dad for good or for bad, right? Most everybody's heard the song way back in the day. It's an oldie moldy called Cats in the Cradle. Harry Chapin, the lyrics are tragic when you think about it. It's a catchy tune, but it's tragic lyrics. The father didn't have time for his son. Because of various things, dad missed important moments. And all the while, what the son say? I'm going to be like you, dad. I'm going to be like you. And at the end of his days, in the song, when dad did have time for his son, he called him up and he says, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. And the son said, I love you, dad, if I can find the time. You see, the new job's a hassle, and the kids have a clue. But it's sure nice talking to you, dad. Sure nice talking to you. As I hung up the phone, the song goes, it occurred to me, my boy was just like me. The point is, we teach our kids profound life lessons, whether we know it or not. Let's make sure that we teach them the ways of the Lord. And those of us who are grandparents, we have a second chance. I praise God for that. Now, we have to work through parents of the kids, but we still have a second chance. I'm, I'm grateful. But it happens most effectively, the transfer, when kids honor mom and dad when they consider them valuable and worthy of respect. Now, of course, it's a two-way street, right? Fathers and mothers, be there and make sure that you are making it less difficult for your sons and daughters to obey the fifth word. Because if, if, if mom's dad makes it hard on the kids, it's going to be very difficult for the kids to be able to do this. Would you agree, young folks? <laughs> May it be a joy for them to honor you by the relationship that you build with them under the Lordship of Christ. Now, the second and third things 
really tie in together and is summed up in a phrase. Survival of the nation, literally. The fifth word was given so that if sons and daughters honored dad and mom well, and dad and mom diligently taught their kids the ways of the Lord, two things would happen. First, the days of the people would be long. Physical length of life would be elongated. And second, things would go well with the nation. In short, if kids honor the parents, and the parents diligently teach the kids the Lord's ways, then the Lord's blessings will rest on the nation. If not, as in the kids do not honor the parents, and the parents do not teach the kids the Lord's ways, then the Lord will curse the nation. This was Israel. The days of God's people will not be long, and the people, things will not go well with the people in the land of promise. And if you're a careful Bible reader, you know that this thing played itself out over and over and over again. Parents do not teach their kids, and kids do not honor their parents. And the result was Yahweh's curse was upon them. But gloriously, we know this, don't we? The Lord is merciful, and He's gracious, and He's kind, and He's forgiving. And again, if you're a careful Bible reader, you know that God brought His people back because God blesses repentance. God loves to forgive. He loves to bless repentance. And as it was then, so it is today. In every household where the Lord's fifth word is lived out, here's what we'll find. We'll find fathers and mothers with good godly relationships with their sons and daughters. Sons and daughters find it less difficult to hold their dads and moms in high esteem and profoundly learn the ways of the Lord. And in their household, the Lord blesses them. And what we need today in our country is revival, don't we? And in short, revival on a large scale looks just like I described it. As households live out God's ways, and moms and dads and kids are transformed that way. As households are transformed, then what happens? Neighborhoods are transformed. As neighborhoods can be transformed, then towns and cities and states can be transformed. Is this not what revival is all about? A return to the Lord on a massive scale. May we pray, Lord, send revival, and may it begin with me. May it begin with my spouse. May it begin with my kids. And so as God's people, what we take away from these two powerful words of Yahweh, that of rest, that of remember and honor, is this not the most excellent way to live? We as the people of God, saved by His grace through faith, ought to be so excited to live out these ways in our lives, especially at home, that we can't wait to show and tell all those around us the best way to live, that they too can come into the family of God. Now, it's been said that evangelism is simply one starving beggar telling another starving beggar where to find food. And as we know, the places where the bread of life can be found are getting increasingly scarce. You think about the shelves in the stores that are getting less and less on there. The bread of life is even less so. And I would say that if we're not actually in it, we probably are getting very, very close to having a famine of spiritual life and spiritual truth and spiritual bread in our country. The prophet Amos 
talks about this in Amos 8, 11, and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. How many people would be satisfied with that? What a horrific thing, this famine. May the Lord have mercy on us as his people. May the Lord have mercy and endow grace united that we will continue to dispense the bread of life. And may the Lord be kind and powerful in our country to raise up storehouses of the bread of life beginning in our own homes and also in our local churches for his honor and his glory. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious God you are. How you have given us life. Father, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, who is the bread of life. And Lord, for all of us in this room this morning, for all of us who know you, and even more importantly, all of us who you know, Lord, we thank you for the relationship. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be in the family of God. We thank you, Lord, for you dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we want to show you that we are grateful. And in gratitude, Lord, we want to live out your ways in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships. So Lord, I thank you for these things. I thank you for your great word to us about keeping the Sabbath and what that means, about honoring mom and dad, and about about the kids doing this and about how mom and dad need to uh, instill within their kids and grandkids um, your ways. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in this, and may your Spirit endow us, may your Spirit empower us to do this. And so now, Lord, I pray that you help us as we turn our attention to our giving and also, Lord, to uh, the singing. Help us, Lord, to have these things done as an act of worship because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name.